Well, we'll begin with our study of Isaiah tonight, and uh, tonight we're moving into Isaiah chapter 9 and then into chapter 10. And uh, t- the section that we're looking at tonight is from chapter 9, verse 8, through chapter 10, verse number 4. And the focus of this section of Isaiah is on the Lord's anger toward Israel for their disobedience and their rebellion. And if you think about it, that is a really, really stark contrast to what the section that we were just in at the in the beginning of chapter nine, which is essentially a promise of hope and of light and of the coming of the Messiah. And so if you're reading through Isaiah and you're reading through large portions at a time, you are on a roller coaster because you know, you'll go from judgment to hope, to judgment to hope. And, and it, it just goes back and forth. And, and these messages, and, and you got to remember that Isaiah didn't just sit down all at one time and write the whole book of Isaiah. And he, he didn't preach it all at the same time either. So this this book is really a collection of all of his uh, his messages from the Lord that he received at different times. And and so sometimes the way that those are stitched together and those are put together in the book of Isaiah, you can almost get whiplash, you know, going from just the incredible high hope and expectation of a child Messiah who is going to come and is going to be called the wonderful counselor, mighty God, everlasting father, prince of peace. And then verse seven of chapter nine says that this coming Messiah is going to have the government on his shoulders and he will be a king who will rule on David's throne with justice and with righteousness and with peace forever and ever. And then you come to chapter 9, verse 8, and it's the Lord's anger towards Israel again. And one of the commentators that I read suggested that even even thinking about it literarily, if that's the right use of that word, from a literature standpoint of the quick jump from the Messiah to the Lord's anger against his people actually serves as a fitting contrast to the difference between the Messiah's rule of justice and righteousness and what was actually going on in Isaiah's day. And so that really quick, abrupt literary transition serves as a fitting almost a a contrast, just like the actual contrast between the Lord's perfect kingdom and the very flawed kingdom that was a part of Isaiah's Israel in his day. And so other, you know, the Messiah's kingdom is described as justice and righteousness. And that was the furthest thing that was characterized of Israel's kingdom in Isaiah's day. And so this passage beginning in verse eight of chapter nine discusses and presents the Lord's anger against Israel for their sins. And uh, one of the study Bibles that I read, I think this is the NIV Zondervan study Bible, it said that this whole section is a reminder that both Israel and Judah should have been paying attention to their relation to God and what he expected of them as his covenant partners. So they should have been paying attention to God. They should have been, their focus should have been on him. But what was happening in their day is instead of focusing on God, they were more focused and more worried about the threat that they were facing from Assyria, 
from this powerful force, this, this empire that was north of them. And so all their focus was on that, and they were fearful of that. And, but their focus should have been on the Lord and on being faithful to his word. And the amazing, there's really an irony in that, in that the thing that they're fearing the most and the thing that they're focused on the most they wouldn't have to focus on at all and wouldn't have to worry about at all if they had been focusing on the Lord. Because if they had been focusing on the Lord, then the Lord would not have been in a, a, a role of chastisement and of judgment against Israel. And they wouldn't have to worry about the Assyrians coming to attack them. But because they had ignored the Lord, the Lord is sending the Assyrians as, a, as an instrument of his judgment against them. And so now they're focused on that. They're focused on the judgment. But they should have been all along focused on the Lord and on being obedient to him and faithful to him. This section in Isaiah 9, 8 through chapter 10, verse 4, has four very clear sections in it. And these four sections are very observable because at the end of each of the sections, there is a recurring phrase. And the phrase is this, yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. And the idea with that is that the Lord is angry with Israel because of their rebellion, and he is bringing judgment on Israel. But even after bringing elements of judgment against Israel, basically this refrain is saying the Lord's anger is still not assuaged. His anger is still not appeased. His hand is still upraised, meaning he is still in a mode of judgment against Israel. And so this repeated refrain communicates the fact that God's anger against sin cannot be easily assuaged. And especially when you think about the cross, it brings a lot of uh, focus to that statement, doesn't it? That the Lord's wrath against sin is not easily assuaged or appeased. For God's wrath against sin to be fully and finally appeased, it took the death of his son, the Lord Jesus Christ, to stand in our place. And so the Lord's anger is not quickly turned away. And what this phrase also shows is that the wrath of God will fall in multiple stages on Israel because of their disobedience. And we'll see in this passage that they deserve that because the Lord's anger would come and yet they still would not repent. And so his anger would abide against them. The people had ignored God's judgment. And so basically he's taking it to the next level each time. His anger is still there. And so these four clear sections can be broken down like this. Verses 8 through 12 discusses the Lord's anger at human pride. Verses 13 through 17 discusses the Lord's anger against the wicked leadership of Israel. Verses 18 through 21 shows God's anger at the, the internal strife and division that was present within the tribes of Israel itself. And then in chapter 10, verses 1 through 4, we see the Lord's anger against social injustice mistreating one another. And so let's look at the first section, verses 8 through 12, is the Lord's anger at human pride. 
And in the first couple of verses of this section, we see that the Lord's warning to Israel had been very clear. So it's not as if the people of Israel did not know what was expected of them. And it wasn't as if they had not been warned because the Lord's word had come to them and been very clear. Isaiah 9, 8 says, the Lord has sent a message against Jacob. It will fall on Israel. And basically there you have Jacob and Israel being used in parallel, both referring to the same thing. Those are the two names of Jacob, right? His name was Jacob. He had 12 sons. Later, the Lord renamed him Israel. And his sons became known as the people of Israel, the tribes of Israel. And so this is directed against him. The Lord has sent messages to him that have been very clear. Verse 9 says that all the people will know it, Ephraim and the inhabitants of Samaria. When you're in the prophets and you see Ephraim mentioned, sometimes it may refer just to the one tribe of Ephraim. But oftentimes in the prophets, when you see Ephraim, it is referring to the whole northern kingdom of Israel. And the reason for that is because Ephraim became the most dominant tribe in the northern kingdom of Israel. And so when you see Ephraim used in this collective sense, just think Israel, the northern kingdom. Also, uh, Samaria can be used that way, too, because of the region in which the northern kingdom was located, was also known as Samaria. And so... This is a message directly against the the northern kingdom of Israel. Now, there are things in the passage that do seem to point to Judah in the southern kingdom, but it seems like the major focus of this particular section is against Israel, the northern kingdom. And so they have been warned. The word of the Lord has come to them very clearly. And the Lord is angry with them. He's angry with Israel because one reason is because of their self-dependent pride. Self-dependent pride. And basically, we can every single one of us can identify with that, can't we? Every one of us can identify with our tendency to be dependent upon ourselves and to think that we can handle things our own way and rely upon our own wisdom and skill and talents, and we don't need the Lord. And that was, that was the situation in Israel at this time. They were lifted up in pride and arrogance, thinking that they had everything under control and that they didn't need the Lord. Even when times were going bad and things were working against them, they still had confidence in themselves that they could figure a way out. And so verse 9, the people of Ephraim and Samaria, they will know it. And verse 9 describes them as being proud and arrogant of heart. And here's why. Verse 10. Here's what they were saying. Here's here's an expression of their pride. The bricks have fallen down, but we will rebuild with dressed stone. The fig trees have been felled, but we will replace them with cedars. In other words, bad things have already happened. Like the first initial waves, if you will, of God's judgment against them have already come. And in their mind, in their self-dependent pride, in their arrogance, they think not only can we recover from this, but we can even make it better. So 
the bricks have fallen down. We're going to replace it with something even better, with dressed stone. The fig trees have fallen down. We're going to replace them with thicker, bigger cedars. So they had a lot of confidence, proud confidence in themselves. They thought they could rebuild whatever God had torn down. That's pretty arrogant, isn't it? And so the Lord's wrath is going to come, and it's not going to be quickly extinguished. He is fed up with their pride, their arrogance, and their rejection of him. And so the Lord's wrath is coming, verses 11 and 12. But the Lord has strengthened Rezin's foes against them and has spurred their enemies on. Who is this talking about? Remember who Rezin is? He is the king of Syria. And Syria and Israel were in alliance with each other. And their foe is Assyria to the north, this large kingdom that it's expanding its strength. And by the time that Isaiah's writing this, this particular oracle, Assyria has already essentially conquered King Rezin and Syria. And he's coming next for Israel. And so that probably has to do with the, the, the idea of the trees having fallen down and the bricks having fallen down. In other words, Syria, their partner, has already been defeated. But they think, we can still rebuild. We can still recover from this. And what God is saying is, no, the, the enemies of Rezin, they're coming for you too. And they're going to knock you down. Arameans from the east and Philistines from the west have devoured Israel with open mouth. Yet, and here's that recurring phrase... Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. So proud, arrogant, we can take care of ourselves. And that was what they were trying to do with all of these political maneuvers, wasn't it? We don't need God. We can just make some alliances. And we can, we can strengthen ourselves against this threat. But the Lord says, no, I'm going to tear down your pride. I'm going to humble you. And so he brings Assyria as that method of punishment. And so the Lord is angry with human pride. In verses 13 through 17, we see that the Lord is angry with the wicked leaders of Israel. And what's amazing about the people is, and I guess I shouldn't say amazing because we're all this way. They're stubbornly unrepentant, even in the face of the Lord's judgments. Verse 13 says, but the people have not returned to him who struck them, nor have they sought the Lord Almighty. So even the Lord, even though the Lord is beginning to bear down in on them with his hand of chastening and judgment, they're still being obstinate and hard hearted and unrepentant. And so the punishment that God brought did not produce repentance, especially among the leaders. And so they will be held responsible for their influence over the people. So verse 14 specifically calls out the Lord's anger against the leaders. The Lord is angry with the leaders. He's angry with the prophets because they have failed to guide the people into truth and they failed to guide them into repentance. And so in verse 14, we see, so the Lord will cut off from Israel both head and tail, both palm branch and reed in a single day. And probably the idea there is that these, these are two opposites that are also intended to communicate the whole 
in between. So you have the head and the tail. They represent the leaders and the prophets, but also the whole body is going to be judged as well. So kind of the idea of opposites, bookends, and all the books in between. And same thing with the the palm branch and the reed, taking two things that were different, opposite, and communicating totality, everything. And so the the head symbolizes the leaders of Israel, so the king, his royal officials, the provincial governors over different tribes and places, they're going to be judged. Why? Because the leaders did not lead the people aright. They did not lead them into truth. And so they're particularly responsible, aren't they? And also the prophets. These would be false prophets, wouldn't they? False prophets who misled the people. And the prophets who said, here is the word of the Lord, and yet it wasn't the word of the Lord. And they misled them and brought them into this path of destruction. And one of the commentators suggested, I think very interestingly, that one of the reasons why the prophets are described as the tail is because they basically just parroted whatever the leaders wanted them to say. And you see that a lot of times in the books of Kings and Chronicles, in which the leader wanted to do something, and basically he wanted the prophet to just verify what he wanted to do. And if the prophet brought a genuine word from the Lord that disagreed with what he wanted to do, well, that prophet didn't always suffer a very good fate. Because he didn't really want to hear the word of the Lord. He just wanted to be confirmed in what he already wanted to do. And the false prophets usually gave that to them. And so they're just the tail following wherever the head goes. So they're just parroting whatever the leaders want them to say. But the Lord's judgment is coming on them because they have failed in their responsibility to correctly lead the people and teach the people God's word. And we know from scripture that there is a particular weight of responsibility that falls on leaders, isn't there? Because they're responsible for the influence that they have over others. And so the Lord is angry with the leaders of Israel. Those who guide this people mislead them. Those who are guided are led astray. So you have misinformed guides, and therefore you have people who are misguided, and they're led astray. And the problem with this is that it therefore leads to all of the people being guilty and all of the people going to face the Lord's wrath. Verse 17 shows us that the Lord's anger will be all-inclusive. Nobody will escape all tiers of society all classes, and it will be unrelenting. And so verse 17 says, Therefore the Lord will take no pleasure in the young men, nor will he pity the fatherless and the widows, for everyone is ungodly and wicked. Every mouth speaks folly. And there is a recurring refrain. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. And what's amazing about this verse is that normally in Scripture, we see the Lord taking pity and having compassion on the fatherless and the widows. But here, his judgment is all-inclusive, isn't it? It's extending to all levels of society, even to the weakest ones. And the idea here is probably because the leaders have led all of society, even down to the fatherless and the widows, have led them into disobedience too. And so... Everyone is guilty. And this verse confirms that when it says every mouth speaks folly. Everyone is wicked. 
and ungodly. And so it's God's wrath against Israel is not going to play favorites, basically. It's coming on the leaders, but it's also coming on everyone from the top to the bottom against sin. And then we see in verses 18 through 21, the Lord's anger at internal strife. In verses 18 through 21, we seem to get a picture of Israel battling with itself, of tribe against tribe. And and it, this kind of describes a situation that we see frequently throughout the history of Israel. And you see tribes battling against other tribes and division happening within Israel. And in verse 18, we see that this, that the wickedness of Israel has devastating and far-reaching consequences. Verse 18 uses symbolism to describe and to, to put into picture form how devastating wickedness is on a society. Surely wickedness burns like a fire. It consumes briars and thorns. It sets the forest thickets ablaze so that it rolls upward in a column of smoke. It's like the picture of a forest fire, isn't it? Of like a forest fire in the midst of drought. You've got these dry bushes, dry thorns, dry branches, and all it takes is one spark, right? And it quickly consumes everything in its path. And this is how the prophet Isaiah is describing what wickedness can do in a society, in a culture. It can be like that fire that quickly spreads and consumes everything in its path and overtakes. It's devastating in its effects. And it's virtually uncontrollable when it begins this effect. And so we see the effects of this in Israel in the way that they fought with one another. The tribes of Israel were full of internal strife and division. They selfishly looked out for the good of their own tribe, oftentimes above the good of the whole, above the good of the nation. And now that internal strife is magnified by the devastation of war. And so they have a history of battling with one another. But now that even worse times are coming and war is coming, they're going to be turning on each other even more and fighting against one another. Internal strife. So verse 19 says, By the wrath of the Lord Almighty, the land will be scorched and the people will be fuel for the fire. They will not spare one another. On the right, they will devour, but still be hungry. On the left, they will eat, but not be satisfied. Each will feed on the flesh of their own offspring. That's a pretty graphic description, isn't it? And basically what it's showing is that, that when it comes to wickedness and then the judging hand of the Lord falling on wickedness, essentially it becomes every man for himself. And they, the, the devastation of war and the heavy hand of the Lord falling down on them becomes an even, even more fuel for their internal strife and division. Verse 21 says, Manasseh will feed on Ephraim and Ephraim on Manasseh. And then together they will turn against Judah. Yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Now, one of the commentaries I read suggested that in the past, in Israel's history, 
you see elements of this um, division. Even in the book of Judges, that's pretty early in Israel's history, isn't it? Even before they have a king. In, in the period of the Judges, you have a situation in which the Ephraimites and the people of Manasseh were in battle with each other. And at that time, 42,000 Ephraimites were killed at the hands of their other son of Joseph. So here you have the two sons of Joseph, right? Ephraim and Manasseh. They should have been some of the closest, and yet they were full of internal strife and division and conflict, civil war even. And so their, their whole history has been, has been, it's been evident, this internal strife. But now it's intensified because of war, because of the judging hand of God. And they've turned on one another. They've turned against Judah. But yet the Lord's hand of judgment is still coming. So the Lord is angry with internal strife. By the way, the Lord hates division and strife, doesn't he? You read in Proverbs that one of the seven things that the Lord hates, one of the seven things that's an abomination to the Lord is the person who sows discord, sows strife between brethren. These were brothers. They're supposed to be together, and yet there was strife and division, and the Lord is angry with that. And then at the end of the passage, the, the fourth section is the Lord's anger at social injustice. The Lord's anger at social injustice. And this is a theme that we see all the way throughout the prophets, whether even the minor prophets or even the major prophets like Isaiah and Jeremiah. This is a, this is a recurring theme. And it's important for us to think about that because a lot of times we think that the, the main reason that the Lord was angry with Israel and with Judah is because of their idolatry and their false worship. And certainly that's true. You look throughout the history of Israel, and they were constantly falling into false worship and idolatry. But also, the prophets, they're very clear about the fact that the Lord was also angry with them in the way that they treated one another, in the way that they perverted the justice system, in the way that they bribed officials, in the way that they perjured themselves in the courts, in the way that the, the strong oppressed the weak. The Lord was just as angry about that as he was about them bowing down before images and idols. And what that shows is that all of this is interrelated, isn't it? You can't, you can't really have true worship of the Lord without the, the life of love of neighbor that flows out of it. Love of God and love of neighbor are interrelated, interconnected. And so the Lord is angry at the social injustice that's going on inside of Israel. And so his holy wrath is going to be directed against those who distorted justice and took advantage of the weak. So we see in chapter 10, verses 1 and 2, Woe to those who make unjust laws, to those who issue oppressive decrees, to deprive the poor of their rights and withhold justice from the oppressed of my people, making widows their prey and robbing the fatherless. So, very harsh words against those who would use their positions of influence, whether it be wealth or positions of power in government 
whatever it is, to use those positions of wealth and influence to oppress others and to distort the law, to pass laws that are hurtful to people, to do unjust things, underhanded things with the law that leaves people even worse off than they were before. The Lord is angry with that. And what we see at the very last couple of verses of the section is that there is no hiding from the Lord's wrath. You can't hide from it. Verses three and four. What will you do on the day of reckoning when disaster comes from afar? To whom will you run for help? Where will you leave your riches? In other words, there's no place to run. There's no place to hide. Nothing will remain but to cringe among the captives or fall among the slain. And then the last time this refrain is repeated, yet for all this, his anger is not turned away. His hand is still upraised. Their unjustly obtained wealth that they fleeced from the the oppressed is not going to help them in the day of disaster. They would have to choose, this verse says, between captivity or death. When, when Assyria comes, those are their two choices, captivity or death. The Lord is angry with his people. Why is he angry? Because they've broken covenant, because they've disobeyed, because they've worshipped false gods, because they're proud and arrogant, because uh, their leaders have failed them and led them into false ways because they've been angry and hostile toward one another and because they have completely upended the whole system of law and justice that was intended to protect everyone and especially to protect the weak and the vulnerable, they flipped upside down to bless the advantaged and the wealthy and the powerful. And the Lord's anger is coming against them. And the tool that God chose to use in his holy wrath was the nation of Assyria. Which shows his providence, doesn't it? Shows his providence, his rule over all of history, that he can use the strongest empire in the world at that time to do his bidding and to come and be his his rod of judgment against his people. But then you think, that doesn't seem right. That doesn't seem just for God to use a wicked people to judge his own people but he's going to turn to Assyria next. And so beginning in chapter 10, verse 5, there are also some very harsh words of judgment directed toward Assyria. So God's going to use Assyria to judge Israel, but then God's going to take care of Assyria too for their wickedness and their rebellion. 